for that. Um, so I'm Brandon, one of the pastors here at Christ Fellowship. And uh, a couple of things before we get into the text for this morning. One, um, just standing there praying over a sent one, there were at least six missionaries and missionary kids who have given long-term chunks of their life to the Lord's work uh, around the world. And it is a, a privilege and a, a blessing to be a part of a church that is so uh, tied to the nations, that, that is sending. I can look out over the room and I see people who are getting ready to go. I see people who are aspiring, looking for the place, hoping for the training. Um, people who have gone and come back. Uh, it's just, it's a blessing to be a part of that. And one of the big ways that we're inviting you to be a part of that mission work in uh, this year and, and for years to come is uh, at this past family meeting last Sunday, we shared with you the plan for the One Mission Offering, which is an opportunity, it's an over and above giving uh, opportunity to support missionaries that are tied directly to our church, uh, who are going to be on the field or who are already on the field all around the world. Um, last time I went through that list, I think we, we represented uh, every continent and, and in the teens of countries and cities that uh, people from our church are directly involved in. And then this past week, the pastors and some others were able to go to the, the Pillar Conference. And so as a result of our relationships with the Pillar Network, we have planters and pastors and teams on the ground all over the nation, and uh, some who are in places like Marseille, uh, where uh, Neil and his family are getting ready to go and support the work. So there's just, it's an unbelievably connected international opportunity to support the kingdom of God uh, by simply praying and giving. And then we also want to invite you to go. There are opportunities to go on trips to visit some of these folks, and then as they are on the field for some amount of time, it's a huge encouragement to have some ties to home, come and see the work that they're doing and to uh, work with them for a short time. So if long-term mission is not something that the Lord has called you to now overseas, because he's definitely called you to it here where you live and work, then uh, a short-term opportunity to go and love and care for some of these sent ones is uh, a great opportunity. And then uh, I also wanted to double down on what Hugh said in the announcements about the pastor's forum this evening. Uh, if in the Lord's mercy and grace, uh, sexual sin and lust is not a thing that's forefront that you're currently battling, people in your life are. And if it's not one that you're currently battling, you probably will. So this evening for the guys, uh, we really want you to be there. We're going to provide dinner and we're going to provide, again, some biblical counsel. I've heard some really atrocious secular counsel on dealing with those kinds of things. And so we want to offer the hope and life of the Word of God and, and His way to deal with these things and not just, uh, you know, checklists and do-betters. So please, please take advantage of that. This morning we're going to be in Luke 19 in what I think is kind of a weird story. Um, the, the story of Zacchaeus, which uh, Maddie read for us a little bit earlier, happens in Jericho. And Jericho is, is one of the major inland tax collection spaces for the Roman Empire. Capernaum, where uh, Jesus called Levi or Matthew to come and be a disciple, uh, is one of the major ones. Jericho, where our story takes place today, is only 15, 20 miles away from Jerusalem. And then Jerusalem are the big inland spots for tax collection. So it's a, it's a big deal space. Now, 
being that it's only 15, 20 miles away from Jerusalem and Jesus is on his way there, Jesus is only a couple of days of foot travel from the last week of his life on earth, right? of, of his, his last week of his ministry. He just told the disciples in uh, 18, chapter 18, what was going to happen once he gets there. It's not a pretty picture. Uh, and, and this is the last personal story that happens before Jesus kind of makes it into his kingdom, the last personal interaction that Luke records. Since he's been traveling, uh, the, the journey to Jerusalem started way back in Luke 9, so that was sometime, you know, last year, it seems like, at this point. Uh, now, as, as the obedient servant, as, he's, as we know him as in Isaiah 57, right, he had set his face like flint, right? He is facing the, the impending uh, torture, He's, he's going to death row innocent and uh, like a lamb. He's not defending himself. He's not fighting against the task, but he is uh, going into public shame, humiliation, torture, temptation to, uh, to avoid the cross, separation from the Father that he's not known from eternity past. You can imagine uh, the, the pain that's there. And then as I try to put myself in that headspace, not as fully God, fully man, but just as me, weak, uh, weak man. To say that that would put you on edge, I think, is an understatement. And so I, I can think of, of watching Jesus through the last several chapters. Um, you know, he's been traveling through Samaria and Galilee and making his way to Jericho, where he would ultimately end up in Jerusalem. And I wonder how Jesus responds the way that he's been responding to people, knowing what he's walking into. I feel like when, when we get that kind of news, if I get a diagnosis, if I get uh, news, even just so that we're gonna have a hard day at work today because somebody's done something and I need to go clean up this, this conflict, I tend to get a little bit on edge. I tend to, to have a hard time with interruptions and even people I love interrupting. It's a challenge. Healing and really never making an excuse for why he can't give more is uh, a stark contrast to where I feel like I would be in this space. And so uh, when, we, when we look at the mission and what he's doing, uh, we get a little sixth sense moment at the end of this passage that, that explains how and why. But we're going to take uh, kind of four thoughts about salvation coming and try to make a little application in each thought. They should be fairly self-evident, I think, as we go. Uh, but the first is, as we set the stage for this, salvation has come to Jericho. Jesus' name means to deliver or to rescue. So when we say Jesus, Savior, we're kind of saying Savior, Savior. Like when we sing hallelujah, praise the Lord, we're saying praise the Lord, praise the Lord. And so Jesus has come to Jericho. It's the home of Herod's winter palace, which uh, when you read the rest of chapter 19, that's kind of the, the backdrop for this talk of a, uh, a ruler who's uh, harsh and aggressive and, and wants what wasn't his, right? Herod has built a palace here. Jericho's 3,500 feet below uh, Jerusalem, so it's a little warmer in the winter. It's a little nicer spot. There's some palm groves and other things that make it a beautiful place. And Jesus is passing through. So it's not that he's planning to stay here. He's not on a, a Pauline kind of mission trip where he's going to establish a church in Jericho and be here for a long time, but rather he's just moving through. But as we've seen throughout his ministry, Jesus is always on mission. 
and he always makes the most of these situations. Uh, in, in, in point, the story right before this, as he approached Jericho, he saves a blind man who, who calls out to him for a God-sized ask. So very brief application from this, this first thought, that salvation has come to Jericho, is that Jesus is ministering everywhere that he goes. It's an as-he-is-going ministry. It's not a, I need to get to a place to love and serve or to call people to a thing, but it's a, the Lord has put me in every place that I'm in sovereignly so that I can be on mission in those places. So there's no on or off the clock for Jesus. His whole life is given to advancing the kingdom of God. In the same way, our whole lives, if we're in Christ, our ministry not just the parts that are overtly tied to what we do at church or for the church. Okay? So as you're going, make disciples. Larger chunk here, uh, salvation has come to Zacchaeus. So there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And uh, when, when we tell stories, we introduce things kind of that we think that our listeners are going to want to hear. Okay? So why is Luke writing this book and Acts, he's writing to Theophilus, and uh, he wants to convince or prove to him that the gospel that he heard was real and true. This actually happened. You can have faith in what you've heard about Jesus and the salvation he offers. And so Luke writes to Theophilus about a weird little guy who does some very strange public stuff in Jericho. So if the point of Luke is to prove that Jesus is the real deal, I think adding some of these colorful events is something that would be verifiable for Theophilus. That if the chief tax collector in Jericho, which is a major space, is, uh, is doing things and he's the little guy, he's the one, you know, you'll find him. You've heard about this. That if it wasn't true, Theophilus, others like him, could have said, yeah, I, I went to investigate. It's not true. Let me write about it all over the, old, the, uh, the ancient world. And it kind of debunks the truth of what's going on here. So I, I think that there's some opportunity here. C.S. Lewis talked about this with kind of the personal nature of how these things are written. It either is a brand new genre of fiction that didn't exist in the ancient world or it's reporting. We're going to believe, right, that it's reporting. Jesus is, uh, is in this place doing some, uh, some interesting stuff with an interesting character who Theophilus could have asked about. So Zacchaeus, whose name uh, is, it means clean and pure, is anything but. He's the chief tax collector. Basically, he's a cartel boss in Jericho. He ran the tax collection racket. And uh, if you think taxation is theft now, at least it's fairly civilized. Okay? So tax collectors... You also see them called publicans, that's what the Romans called this position, would bid to buy tax rights over a certain geography, kind of like you would buy a FedEx delivery route now. And if you own the rights to that space, you collect the taxes. Anything over and above what you bid that you would send to Rome is yours, right? That's, that's pocket money. And then publicans would also disperse funds for the Roman Empire to retired soldiers or to those folks who that, <clears throat> that was owed and so Zacchaeus gets to take the skim in both directions. Jericho's a long way away from Rome, and uh, so, so he is a rich man. Jericho was a wealthy city, and Zacchaeus is sitting at the top of the chain. And if we know anything about the kind of person who sits on top of a, an empire of theft, he's probably a wicked 
and selfish guy. It's likely that people have suffered, probably died because of his policies. Not enough was dispersed. We can't feed the family. Too much was taken. We can't feed the family. We can't plant next year. We can't whatever the case is. And so he's definitely a bad guy in Jericho and really a strange character for Luke to introduce in Jesus' last days, okay? But he needs, he needs Jesus. So what, what's going to happen to the tax man? Verse 3 says, when he was trying to see who Jesus was, but he was not able to because of the crowd, because he was a short man. And uh, being the wee little tax collector could have been a detail. Again, Luke adds this for a little, little facts checking, fact checking, a little color. But what could possibly motivate the Tony Soprano of Jericho to care who Jesus is, right? What, what's going to move him to do this? I don't think that Zacchaeus is going out to meet every local celebrity who passes through town. Uh, it's, it's not likely. Uh, he probably has people for that, right? They bring people to Zacchaeus. He doesn't go and meet and see people. He's a rich man. Jesus just got finished telling a crowd that it would be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. At least in part because we who are rich can easily be fooled into thinking, you know, we're self-sufficient. Every bit of my life, uh, you know, I, I can handle this. I can grab a little bit more money here. I can provide security there rather than uh, knowing the truth that every piece of our life is a gift that we've received from the Father of Lights through no merit of our own. So he wants to see, I thought it was interesting, who Jesus was. He doesn't have Instagram, right? He can't go run over and like catch a selfie with Jesus and then post it so that he gets like cool by association. Um, rather, he, he wants to find out, like who, who is this guy? And I wonder, are you here to see who Jesus was? When we look at the pictures presented in Luke's gospel, uh, it, it starts out, you know, looking through other people's eyes in Luke. Uh, he's an upstart from Nazareth. He starts preaching to the people in his hometown, and they go, hey, isn't this, isn't this Joseph's son? Who is he to tell us what to do and what we should think and how we should be? We see through other people's eyes. He's the Holy One of God, the Son of Man, the good teacher. He's a great physician. He's the Messiah, the one who's come to take away the sins of the world. But Zacchaeus doesn't know that yet, right? I, I wonder, as I was reading this, if Zacchaeus knew Matthew or knew about Matthew's call. You go back into uh, Luke 5, at the uh, kind of middle of the, the chapter, verses 27 and following. He says, after this, uh, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi. We know him as Matthew now, sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So, leaving everything behind, he got up, and began to follow him. So there's precedent, at least, that Jesus goes and talks to these kinds of people, right? We know that. We, we see people complain. They're getting ready to. Then Levi hosted a grand banquet for him at his house, right? Levi's a rich man too, big banquet for Jesus. He's uh, setting down his old work and going to a new one. And there was a large, a large crowd of tax collectors and others who were reclining at the table with him. So I wonder, maybe news got out. Levi left the profession. He was a rich man. He was comfortable why would, why would somebody do that, right? Maybe Zacchaeus had heard about this. But then, just like the story today, verse 30 says, the Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus replied to them, right? So he, they were asking the disciples. Jesus told them, I, I heard you. It is not those who are healthy who need a doctor, 
but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. It's good news for me, right? It's good news for me. As I was kind of reading and, and thinking through this, this text, I'm, I'm kind of finding myself bouncing back and forth between singing Zacchaeus was a wee little man. Uh, a friend who preached this not too long ago had the congregation sing that, and I didn't think that you guys would be down for that, so you're welcome. Uh, and, and also thinking about what a, a dirty, rotten scoundrel he must have been. And uh, it's, it's easy to dismiss Zacchaeus and just be like, ah, you know, I'm not like him. But that makes me like the Pharisee a couple or a chapter ago when uh, he's standing up and saying, man, thank God I'm not like that tax collector over there. I do all the right things. I behave the way that I'm supposed to. When really the tax collector in this uh, parable uh, in Luke 18 is the one who goes away justified because he comes humbly. He recognizes that he's sick. He recognizes that he's a sinner and he needs healing and he needs to repent. So because I'm in the same boat as Zacchaeus, I really want to know what is Jesus going to do. So verse 4, Zacchaeus goes running ahead. Somebody told me uh, just before I came up here, the fat guys don't run. And uh, if he's rich in the ancient world, that's probably the way that you would know. Publicans don't run. He's, he's probably a member of the class just below the senatorial class, as far as the Romans would be concerned. People of that social status don't run in public. Uh, he's probably not a young man. Older people don't run in public. So he runs ahead of the crowd. He climbs up a sycamore tree. If we don't run, we definitely don't climb trees. To see Jesus, since he's about to pass that way. Uh, so maybe it's practical. He wants to see what's going on. He gets up in the tree. You can look up a ficus sycamorus if you would like to and see what it looks like. But he, he would have been pretty well hidden up in the tree. He could, uh, he could hide out. But again, like why, why is Zacchaeus doing this stuff? You know, I believe the Holy Spirit is moving him into Jesus' path much the same way that he put all of us in the hearing of God's word this morning. He's always at work behind the scenes bringing about God's good purposes. So verse 5, Jesus gets there and he looks up to him and he says, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down because today it is necessary for me to stay at your house. And again, what made Jesus stop there for Zacchaeus? It's his first visit to Jericho. He's just passing through. He's been sidetracked constantly, right? You can imagine if he had a to-do list and it wasn't seek and save the lost, then he would be very frustrated with the way that things are going as he's trying to get to the end of his mission. He just told the disciples about his impending death and they didn't understand, right? So when you're grieving, when you're struggling, when you know that a thing is gonna happen and you try to share it and people just don't get it, right? It's maddening. And yet he's got time for Zacchaeus. So Jesus seeks out Zacchaeus because again, it would have been easy to just walk by. Zacchaeus is up in the tree, he's hiding out, there's a crowd, there's lots of things going on. You guys have done this before at the mall, right? You're walking by. Do people still go to the mall? Probably not. You've done this before at the grocery store. And uh, you're walking by and you notice somebody you know and you like kind of make half eye contact and you both make the lizard face and then continue walking in another direction, right? And it's totally excusable. Hey, I'm here for a purpose, I don't have time to do that, right? I'm gonna walk on. Jesus doesn't do that. He says, hey, Zacchaeus, come down. I need, to, I need to stay at your house today. And it was necessary for Zacchaeus, for Theophilus, for us, 
that Jesus would stay at his house, right? So Jesus, whose name is Savior, has come to and for Zacchaeus. Six and seven. So he quickly came down and welcomed him joyfully. Again, weird behavior. All who saw it began to complain. Normal behavior. He's gone to stay with a sinful man. So, you know, Zacchaeus, maybe he heard that this guy was given sight because it says when, when everybody saw it, they all praised God for what had happened just outside the gates. Maybe he's heard a little bit about what's going on. But Zacchaeus isn't blind, right? At least not physically. He doesn't have any need. He's rich. He's important. He's a bad guy. He outbid his competitors to sell out his city to the ruling oppressors. So why does he quickly and joyfully welcome Jesus? I wonder what his life was like, right, on the day-to-day. We can think of it being uh, he's wealthy and comfortable, but I think that the, the parts that he's feeling a longing and need should be kind of tough for a Christian to understand because belonging to a community is a deep need for us. God has existed since eternity past in community with himself, triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, in joyful, loving interplay. He made Adam, and when he saw Adam was by himself and all, that, all the other creatures had come through, what did he say? It's not good for you to be alone. I need to make somebody that fits you. He brings the first people into community. He gathers the people throughout the Old Testament, and he preserves them through thick and thin, mostly their sin and the consequences of it. The people of Israel had a very strong national identity rooted in the law of God, the presence of God, and thousands of years of history. But here's Zacchaeus, whose name is clean and pure, but he's uh, empty and defiled. He's a traitor. He's a Jew who's stealing from his people to fund the Romans. He's an outsider. All the money in the world can't buy trust and community. A full belly and an empty heart is not a recipe for peace and joy. Power and prestige and a bullseye on your back don't lead to a good night's sleep. The money, the love of money, the root of all kinds of evil has grown to a full thorn bush in Zacchaeus' life. And who wants to be around it? Right? The Romans will replace him if something happens. They'll find somebody else who wants to uh, give him a better offer. His own people don't want him. They're mad at Jesus for hanging out with him. So why does Zacchaeus come down quickly and joyfully? I think that it's because Jesus saw him for who he was, and he reached out in grace anyway. When you think of 31 and 32 from the call of of, uh, Matthew, Jesus replied to them, it's not those who are healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. Zacchaeus was sick. He said, I haven't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And Zacchaeus was a sinner. So Jesus' compassion for him was greater than his fear of what the crowd might think. So little application from this, this piece of the story. The story is, is about Zacchaeus, but more specifically, all the stories in the Bible are about Jesus, right? He's the main character of any story. And so this is broadly a story of the way that Jesus comes to the lost. And so this is a, a question that we ask often, but... Uh, Peter, when he's reminding people of the way to ensure their salvation, he says, I don't mind repeating myself because it's good for you. We'll repeat the question, right? Who's somebody around you that's close to you but far from the Lord? Who's somebody around you that's far from you but close, or far from the Lord but close to you? And how, how can you 
extend that kind of compassion to that person? Could it be that the Holy Spirit is engineering close encounters like Zacchaeus in the tree and Jesus passing by at just the right time to uh, have an opportunity to invite them into your life and expose them to the truth of the gospel? What could it look like? I mean, it's simple things, right? It could be a meal, a round of golf, go for a walk, chuck plastic, play a little bit of Frisbee. But the Lord sovereignly puts us in situations where we, we could, could have gospel encounters daily. So the question here, application, seeing how Jesus responds to Zacchaeus, how could you extend a kingdom invitation to a broken person? Okay. Now, salvation has come unexpectedly. I've said a lot of times now that this is a strange story, and it is. When, when you're hearing this story, maybe you're hearing this for the first time, and I envy you if you are, because it's kind of cool to get to see these kinds of things play out for the first time. But what I try to do as I'm reading and thinking, it's almost like uh, we cover the next part of the passage and just say, okay, up to this point, what has happened? And uh, what's going to happen next? And in this case, it is not something that I could have imagined or guessed. Um, even a good Jew would not have understood or expected, if, if Zacchaeus repented, they wouldn't have expected him to do what he did. Um, verse 8 says, Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, Look, I'll give half of my possessions to the poor, Lord, and if I extorted anything from anyone, I'll pay back four times as much. So if you're a good Jew, you would turn back in your uh, Torah to Leviticus 6, and you'd go, hey, you know, maybe I've stolen some stuff from some people. There are rules about that. Uh, in Leviticus 6, he said, uh, the Lord speaks to Moses, and he says, when someone sins and offends the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in regard to a deposit, a security, or a robbery, or defrauds his neighbor, or finds something lost and lies about it, or swells fa swears falsely, about any of the sinful things a person may do, once he has sinned and acknowledged his guilt, he must return what he stole or defrauded, or the deposit entrusted to him, or the lost item he found, or anything else about which he swore falsely, and he will make a full restitution for it and add a fifth of its value to it. So a good Jew, kind of caught stealing, dealing with this thing, would say, all right, I owe you back what I took plus 20%, and then a ram for the sin, right, for the, for the sin offering. So what does Zacchaeus do? Zacchaeus makes radical restitution for what he's done here, right? 120% or 400%. For a man whose life was given over to the love of money, even over his own people's welfare, to so fully divest himself of his fortune in a moment at a chance encounter with Jesus would have been headline news. It was, we're reading it now, right? So the Spirit opened Zacchaeus' heart, which immediately opened his hands. In Christ, he finally was able to match his name and his heart, that he could be clean and pure by faith in the Savior. So what do we take away from this? I think when we read stories like these, this is a narrative. It's telling us what happened. Jesus doesn't command Zacchaeus to behave this way. He doesn't say, uh, if you want to follow me like he did with the rich ruler, then you've got to get rid of everything you have. But Zacchaeus' reaction to his unexpected invitation into God's kingdom shows the same kind of reaction that Jesus describes 
in Matthew 13, 44, when he talks about the man who finds a treasure buried in a field and seeing that the treasure is worth more than anything else that he could ever have, he goes and sells everything he has to buy the field. Right? That, that Zacchaeus has forsaken his old God to come and worship the real God. When he comes face to face, literally in his case, with the infinite worth of Christ, his fortunes, his lifestyle, his comfort pales in comparison. And when he repents of his love of money and the ill-gotten means by which he accumulated it, he wants to make things right with those he's wrong. So he's repenting. What does genuine repentance look like? One example comes from uh, Paul as he writes to uh, Corinth in 2 Corinthians uh, 7. He says, Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, which is the best thing that you could ever hope for. But worldly grief produces death. And this is a book where life under the law, worldly grief, I'm going to keep the law, I'm going to do better, I'm going to fix things myself. In chapter 3, you go way back, Paul says the letter kills. Okay? The point of the law is to bring death. But repentance, godly grief and repentance, salvation without regret, life in the spirit. For consider how much diligence this very thing, this grieving as God wills has produced in you. What a desire to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what deep longing, what zeal, what justice. And doesn't that look exactly like Zacchaeus's reaction to Jesus? That as he extends salvation, we have true repentance on display, which leads to salvation without regret. Z, or Zacchaeus immediately displays the fruit of repentance that Paul lists out. And he makes radical restitution, forsaking his old God and turning to worship the one true and living God. And verse 9 is probably the most shocking thing that the crowd could have heard, even more than maybe the money going everywhere. Today salvation has come to this house, Jesus told him, because he too is a son of Abraham. And the crowd would say, no, he's not. He's not one of us. He sold us out. He's a traitor. He's an oppressor. He's not a son of Abraham. What, is, what does Jesus mean by becoming a son of Abraham? Romans 4 tells us what this means. He says, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. Now to the one who works, pay is not credited as a gift, but as something owed. But to the one who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited for righteousness. It's another way of saying, this is a true son of Abraham, your faith has saved you. You've leaned in and you've believed and you've repented. That's all that I'm asking for you, right? Jesus, Jesus leans in. So he saved him from uh, having to be his own God. I can understand, as somebody who, who has struggled with worrying about will there be enough or will we be able to, uh, to, to take care of ourselves, have security, trying to be your own God in that regard, Zacchaeus was doing, I need provision, I need, I need security, I need everything to make sure that I'm taken care of in this life, so I'm going to do whatever I have to do to get it. Jesus saves him from being his own little G God and says, you get life in God's kingdom. 
under his sovereign care, that he cares for you as a father, that he takes responsibility for you. And so he can open his hands, he can open his heart because of that. And so the application from this unexpected salvation is to call, along with Luke and Paul and Jesus, that we would have godly grief that leads to salvation without regret. Godly repentance that sparks diligence in us, that we desire to see our sin made right, to separate ourselves from former sin, to fight it, hoping in holiness. So in Zacchaeus's case, because his God was his things, was his, uh, his income, God freed him, his, his repentance opened his hands. Right? He was freed from slavery to sin, to money, and he could freely give. And so in the same way, we're freed to self-denial when we know that God in Christ will not deny us. We're free to give of our time and our energy and our attention and our resources when we know that the maker of heaven and earth has given infinitely more than we could to accomplish his mission to us, okay? And just another reminder of of the one mission opportunity to, to support that globally. And the last thought this morning is that salvation has come to you. Salvation has come to you. Verse 10 says, For the Son of Man has come, to seek and to save the lost. And this is kind of like finding out at the end of the movie some little detail that changes everything that had happened before. Because I, I, as I read, I'll confess, you know, I can read through the gospel narratives and go, okay, this happened, then that happened. Interesting. I could skim a few verses here, whatever, right? I'm trying to move my way through the story. But it's like you get to the end of the sixth sense, and I'm sorry if I spoil a 30-year-old movie for you, but uh, he was dead the whole time. And you go, oh, I immediately need to go back and watch this again and see all the places that I missed what's going on. When you say Jesus came, the Son of Man has come, this is the last thing that he kind of makes this big statement about himself as he's heading into Jerusalem. He came to seek and to save the lost. I want to challenge you to go back and read Luke with that in mind. Right? Everything that he's doing, why is he doing it? Where is he going? Why is he stopping there? Why is he talking to that person? To seek and to save the lost. So we can practice it, right? Look back at verse 1. He entered Jericho, and he was passing through to seek and to save the lost. Right? We know that he's headed to the cross. We know that he's just passing through Jericho. There's no reason for him to stop the proceedings and call a rotten sinner down from a tree and go stay at his house and save him. There's no reason why Zacchaeus should be saved, just like you or me. But that's the good news in Luke 19, 1 through 10. Jesus is on a mission aimed at the heart of every sinner, and especially the rotten ones. It's not a distraction for him to stop and heal the blind man outside of Jericho. It's not too much to ask to heal 10 lepers on his way through Samaria and Galilee. It's why he can voluntarily continue on his path to Jerusalem, in spite of knowing what's going to happen when he gets there. It's why he can kindly and gently call sinners to repentance. And it's why there's hope for us today, for the the hope of an eternal and purposeful life. So application as we wrap up this morning. Jesus had a clear mission for his life. Faith, hope, love, right? Make it possible for him to face all the suffering that he embraced on our behalf. At the beginning of Mark, He says that we are to repent and believe 
the gospel because the kingdom of hand or the kingdom of God is at hand. And then he goes on a mission all of his life to call all the people of God, uh, that all the people that God has given him to enter into the kingdom. And then in the Great Commission, he passes the torch to us, his followers, to say, as you are going, make disciples, right? Teach them everything that I've commanded you. Baptize them, right? Bring them into the fold. And so this morning, as we uh, prepare to finish the service, I want to give you just a minute as the band comes to uh, have some, some quiet contemplation before we sing. So first, for unbelievers in the room, to consider the grace of God that would save a wretch like me, or like Zacchaeus, and the truth that it's, it's why Jesus came to be here in the first place, was to seek and to save broken people like me. To repent and to believe. Christians in the room, to consider the grace that's been given to you, and that since we've freely received it, that we could freely give. And whatever that looks like in your life, as the Spirit gives light to see time, energy, attention, resources, and to consider who in your sphere of influence is so close to you, but so far from the Lord, that you could pray for them, opportunities to bear witness to the grace of God in your life, in hopes that he will call them to himself. So let's take a moment to, uh, to pray and consider. Uh, if as you're doing that, something stirs in your heart, you want to speak with somebody, there's guys in the back that would love to talk with you, pray with you, uh, encourage you. Um, and it doesn't have to be a huge crisis for you to go back there. It could just be, man, I'm really grateful for the grace of God in my life and I want to thank him. Or it could be, I have a need this week, right? We would love to know and pray for you. Father, this morning I lift up the, the brokenhearted to you, the, the empty, the purposeless, uh, those who are outside of your kingdom at this moment. I pray that you would take out hearts of stone and, and give hearts of flesh, that you would give life to those who need it, and that their repentance uh, would be uh, notable, that we would be able to celebrate the work that you've done in their life, and that we would be able to uh, continue to participate in your kingdom work in Greenville and to the nations. Lord, I pray uh, for the believers in the room, for hearts that would uh, forsake all other gods. They creep in all the time, but God, I pray that you would help us to push them away and to focus our eyes on you, and more than that, that you would keep us in the love of Christ, God, because we are not able on our own to do that. So Lord, we rely on you to, uh, to save us as you saved Zacchaeus and then to keep us in your love as we go forward. And I pray that you would give us uh, freedom in that to share good news regardless of what the crowds may think and that you would give us open hands uh, when we have open hearts uh, by way of your spirit. So Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this weird story about Zacchaeus and the truth it tells us about who Jesus is and who we are and uh, what you've done about who we are. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand as we...